Good morning or good afternoon or good time, as they now say in Iran, because uh, we are so dispersed throughout the world. It is my great pleasure to welcome a very dear old friend. Uh, I have known Ms. Afghani uh, for uh, over uh, half a century. We began working together at uh, the university that used to be the National University. It has now changed its name. Uh, I knew her sister as a very dear friend. Uh, and she is truly a remarkable character in the development of the women's movement in Iran uh, before the revolution and after the revolution. And in the brief account that uh, uh, Roma just read, uh, she mentions some names quickly and past as she must, as we have a very short time. But if you think about each one of these, they're really remarkable accomplishments. I want to just briefly talk about one aspect of her career. Uh, she created, with an endowment from Prince Ashraf Pahlavi, the Foundation for Iranian Studies. In that foundation, she helped create, with the assistance of uh, Dr. Jalal Matini, Iran Nome, uh, followed by the stewardship of Hormuz Hekman. Iran Nome will go down in history, in my view, as one of the most absolutely indispensable, most brilliant works of scholarship in Persian on Iran ever produced in the last century and a half. That's a great accomplishment. They also have an oral history. And that's just a footnote to one of her many accomplishments. So welcome, Maaz Khanou. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Uh, and let me ask uh, the first question. Uh, how did your work with the woman begin? First of all, let me thank you, Abbas. It's such a pleasure to be working with you. We've been uh, sort of uh, uh, co-strugglers, uh, let's say, in many areas together for many years. And uh, I admire very much what you've been able to accomplish at Stanford, among other things. And I'm so happy to be working with you now. And uh, what did you ask? <laughs> I'm sorry. How did your work with the women's movement begin? How would you say uh, the start of your uh, work as an activist for women's rights began? I like that question very much. Uh, actually, um, uh, I was, uh, when I was at school in the United States, uh, basically my focus was literature and I didn't have any particular connection to the women's movement at the time. And when I went to Iran, I started teaching at the university and uh, in the same field. And what happened was that uh, the stories, the novels, the poems that we read with my students who were mostly uh, women in literature, you know, tends to be largely uh, preferred by women. And there I saw that uh, women were so, the young women in, in that university were so interested in stories of women in other countries, uh, especially the Western ones, the English speaking ones we were reading. And there was always conversations about the decisions that these women made, the lifestyles that they had, certain liberties that for them uh, was uh, more advanced than their own. Uh, uh, considerably, but then also the decision of, of how much of that would suit them and how much of that, if they had it, would not uh, sort of go along with their values and their uh, traditions and their ties. 
So these conversations really started thinking uh, for me, started my thinking on the place of women in, in history, in literature, in society. And uh, together with, our, with my students, we created the University Women's Association to study these, these areas of endeavor, to study modernity uh, as it appeared in literature and uh, how would that suit uh, our people and uh, discovered uh, bringing uh, people from various areas, uh, from uh, religious practitioners to poets to painters to uh, all various politicians. And that was really a fantastic learning experience in uh, regarding with women and society. And, brought me into actually formally working uh, as the co-creator of the Association of University Women. I think one of the people who worked with you in creating that was Mrs. Moradan. Uh, yes, yes. yes uh, who is the mother of uh, Hamid Moradan yeah. and I had the very good pleasure of having long conversations with her about that. that uh, and she's written in her uh, daily journals some of the uh, meetings. So how did you work with this uh, uh, women's organization of Iran began because in our past conversations that organization keeps coming up as one of the seminal uh, moments. Well, um, as we worked with the university women, uh, we uh, began uh, actually uh, becoming more interested in women's issues and so we looked into uh, what existed and the women's organization had this very interesting centers in the southern part of Tehran, uh, in the underdeveloped uh, poverty-ridden uh, areas of southern Tehran. And the women wanted to uh, talk and see how women lived in that condition. And so we started associating with, uh, with that and uh, with those centers and also with uh, the school for social work that uh, was created there in the south of Tehran and uh, tra trained social workers to work in these centers. So that's how we began the, the organization connecting to the centers of the women's organization. Uh, but uh, more formally, Simil Rejali was at the time uh, uh, the Secretary General of the organization. And uh, Simin was a psychologist and uh, the term, uh, term of uh, work for uh, the uh, Secretary General was two years. She was coming to the end of her turn uh, and uh, she uh, uh, talked to me uh, for one thing uh, to see whether I would like to uh, accompany Princess Aishraf who was the um, honorary president and head of the Iranian delegation at the United Nations uh, whether I would be able to accompany her to New York and uh, she liked to bring women into diplomacy because diplomacy like many other areas but particularly diplomacy, was sort of a um, really masculine arena. There was hardly any um, uh, women employed there except secretaries uh, and sometimes translators. And so she wanted to take two people, one English speaking, one French speaking with her to the delegation in New York and bring them into the diplomatic world. So I said, sure, I would like that, you know, I'll go. She asked me whether I would go and I said, yes, I would. And that's where I uh, became familiar with Princess Aisha. But actually, uh, you know, um, like a lot of things in life, I think, 
things happen like accidents, you know, like for instance, um, my getting into the uh, women's work through the university, through literature, uh, that also became uh, accidental because when I went to the delegation, again, at, toward the end of our uh, term at the, uh, at the General Assembly session, the princess wanted us, both me and Soila Shakar, who was uh, also with me as a French speaker, she wanted us to give a speech on, uh, at the committees. And that again was not very well received by the members of the foreign ministry because this was an occasion where ambassadors could uh, give uh, interesting speeches and then that would be taken to the foreign ministry and taken to the Shah. And uh, for one thing, they weren't particularly fond of having a head of delegation who was a female. They certainly didn't want two young, inexperienced um, uh, sort of uh, aspiring diplomats to be given the speech. But I gave my speech at the, uh, uh, the special political committee, which was headed by by Prince uh, Sadruddin Rohan, uh, and uh, uh, it was on Palestine. And uh, again, accidentally, I think I, I, I have to say, when I gave that speech, you know, it's usually 170, 180 ambassadors around the table sitting and listening. And uh, mine was a particularly dull statement because you had to more or less say the same things that the ambassadors had said before. So uh, nothing very earth-shaking or new. But the session ended exactly after my speech. And the princess came to uh, 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 say hello and leave. Prince Sadruddin came and all these ambassadors gathered also because those two were there. And the princess herself, even though she was the instigator of this crowd, she thought that I must have been something extraordinary because uh, all these people are coming there, the prince is coming and so forth. So that must have been something very special. I think it left a real impression on her, but it was totally accidental. And uh, so she paid more attention, uh, I think, to my uh, activities and what I did than usual. So the next year we uh, were asked again to come and then at the end of the next year she asked me whether I would like to take the position of the Secretary General because that was an appointed position. Uh, there were 10 people in the board uh, uh, who were um, either from the minorities uh, or uh, uh, scholars and um, five that were elected and the Secretary General was appointed by the president. president. So the, I at least uh, I thought I was very um, sort of um, reluctant but I accepted to, to do it because I didn't know anything you know about how the system works. I had been outside of, the, of Iran since I was 14 years old and, and uh, uh, I, I was just gone back about three years. And so, um, but then uh, I think again, when she asked me to be Secretary General, I, we were at lunch and uh, she said, yes. I said, well, it's difficult for me. I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a, a teacher. Uh, and she says, yeah, well, I understand if you were a man, uh, you would take more chances. I think women are sort of reluctant to take chances. And so that really got me to, <laughs> to, to uh, work up to say, uh, yes, I'll take it if I can also teach, you know. So uh, again, you'll forgive me for being... Uh, no, no, this is fascinating. But I have one, <laughs> uh, two questions, actually. Yeah. One is, um, 
the School of Social Work you referred to, this is the one that was created by Farman Farman, right? No, it was the same type of thing, but the difference with it was that the Satare uh, was more um, a four-year, more extended one. Ours right. was a two-year, oh. and we brought people from the villages and, and towns and uh, taught them the, uh, the principal ideas and send them back to where they lived to be social workers there. So That's it amazing. was slightly different in the right, process. Yeah. And the other question was, you, you referred to a number of uh, centers, women's centers that were created in the poorer parts of Iran for women. What did those centers do? Uh, the centers, you know, came again from uh, something that again came out of my lack of familiarity, you know. Uh, I think uh, uh, when I first uh, took the job, I decided that the group of us should go and uh, meet people at the different uh, branches in the in the different cities to see really what it is that they are more interested in, what is it that affects them more and so forth, and presupposing that legislation was important, presupposing for instance that um, something that happened to me I went to the uh, to the uh, bank, uh, bank which was right to the branch right next to the university to open an account for my own son. And they told me that this is not possible. The law does not allow it. Uh, you can open an account, but you can't take money out of it. And, and uh, the, only your husband can. And this was just a minor thing, but other people in terms of divorce, in terms of polygamy. So we thought that's what they wanted. But every place we went time and again women said okay of course we want to uh, uh, discontinue polygamy or or um, uh, have other rights the right to divorce but the most important thing is to be able to support ourselves because if i get a divorce uh, what am i going to do go to my father's house or whatever so economic independence and jobs were the most important thing. So we thought that if we have, uh, have training for skills building for, for economic uh, uh, self-sufficiency, that would be the most important. And then of course the other things followed because you also had to have literacy training. Then you also had to have childcare because where were they, what, were they, what were they going to do without childcare if they didn't have that? So these units, these centers became a combination based primarily on economic independence and then on the side with things that made economic independence possible. So you helped them create a room of their own as Virginia Woolf would say. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Of course, so, you know, we also had the problem that uh, because these were in the uh, underdeveloped poverty within areas of cities, uh, it was very difficult sometimes to get permission for them to come to the centers to learn. So we had to do all sorts of things, <clears throat> get the family and the men of the family to allow them to come. Uh, for instance, in places like Qom, for instance, we went and tried to get this, some Ayatollah's uh, family member or daughter to come so that it would be, uh, you know, okay, uh, kosher, <laughs> not very appropriate word for here, but yeah. <laughs> so that it would be considered <laughs> all right uh, for them to come. Uh, but, uh, but it was also, we, we also talked to them about uh, other ideas about consciousness raising, but slowly and carefully. Uh, yeah. 
Actually, kosher is a very correct word because much of those laws come from the Judaic exactly. tradition. Exactly. Much of the Shiite laws come from that tradition. So, uh, in uh, Ms. Carr, in a really remarkable, candid conversation, Amazing. talked about how there was a reticence in Iranian feminists, particularly of the leftist persuasion, to work with your organization. Could you speak a little bit about the challenges, the successes, the failures, whichever aspect you want to emphasize? Well, at the beginning, you know, um, the, the, actually the organization was very young for one thing. Uh, and uh, it was a very much focused somehow on charity and welfare and helping others and this kind of thing, which were very helpful, you know, and then on education and this type of thing. So a, a lot of the um, elder, more established uh, women uh, with, with some level of means would uh, collaborate with the organization. Uh, but uh, when we, uh, before I came actually, the, uh, during Simin's uh, and uh, Homaruhi before, before him, uh, uh, these centers had begun to, in a more limited way, to start work and so forth. And there were a lot of people working with us. And, you know, there is, there is a certain amount of mythology built into the things that, that are uh, said, thinking back to the time. Uh, but, you know, uh, for instance, it's said that women's organization sort of pushed out every other organization and sort of had a monopoly or something like that, which is far from the truth. Uh, there were at least 57 organizations, independent organizations working who did connect with us if, they, if we were doing something that related to them. You know, for instance, the women uh, uh, in lawyers and uh, uh, people who were uh, interested in the law or women nurses or, uh, or women of minorities, women uh, Armenians or uh, Zoroastrians or whatever, or women who were interested in a very particular area like um, the human rights or environment or whatever. So there were all these um, organizations and uh, nobody stopped anybody from having any organization. But some of them uh, did always have their own organizations. And some of them did not uh, uh, want to as, uh, align themselves necessarily as a partner of the women's organization, such as the lawyers, you know, and also the journalists. They didn't uh, become affiliated. They had their own thing, but then if we had something interesting happening in their field, they would come or we would go. So um, it wasn't that type of thing, but as time went on, the more organized groups, whether they were leftists or whether they were more Islamist, for them it became uh, a matter of political ideology rather than the women's organization, you know. Uh, so uh, that didn't really affect our work very much because those uh, groups had a more of a, a more focused an ideological, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, collaborators or, or constituencies, that was not necessarily our constituency. Our constituency was the ordinary quote-unquote woman, the teacher, the uh, government employee, the people in working in, the, in agriculture, um, uh, ordinary 
uh, women. And then, of course, there were others who helped with research or helped with uh, skills building and this type of thing. And uh, I really never, the only person that I ever reached out to who refused to work with us uh, was a very good friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, Tahereh Safarzadeh. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, of course, a very good friend of mine, uh, but she <clears throat> just didn't want to have anything to do uh, with women's organization. And, and, uh, but everybody else, you know, Simin Bebahani, Nader Poor, everybody, you know, uh, the writers and the others, we worked with all of those. And Merangis herself, you know, as she must have told yeah. you, uh, she taught uh, classes in, in, um, at the women's organization and was a very pleasant colleague, yes. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't know at what time you asked her, but at one moment, because she worked at the university. Uh, yes, yes. At, uh, yeah. She began angling for uh, the Islamic yeah. post-Iran. When, when I first, uh, uh, she came and to, to, to teach at the university, you know, she was very open-minded feminist. If, uh, and mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, she had Sufi tendencies, but very open-minded, very strong feminist. Yeah. Uh, but things changed as we went along. And toward the end, she just wouldn't. She even tried to emulate a little bit of Furugha Farrukhzad in some of her early poems. That's right. Sandwich of love. That's exactly. Could you tell us a little bit about how you became the first uh, uh, minister of women affairs, as far as I know, in the Islamic world, or maybe around the world, I don't know. Well, I was second in the world. Um, it was Francois Giroux of France was uh, the first one. And she actually visited Iran and uh, she came with us uh, and uh, went uh, to uh, visit the tribal women and uh, uh, some of the other activities and so forth. And uh, we talked to her a lot about, the princess talked to her a lot about the position of uh, uh, the new position that had come about. And uh, I honestly don't know uh, how it came about uh, at that particular moment. I think it had a lot to do with the, we, because we'd always thought about uh, getting uh, sort of infiltrating some levels of the government, because we'd seen, for instance, um, that, uh, well, I mean, it's something that we believed in. And later, unfortunately, the feminists in America, especially, uh, negated that thinking. That is, they thought the government is, um, by, by definition, not going to be uh, helpful. And uh, just as the family was taboo, just as uh, men were evil, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so uh, there was a lot of negative uh, thinking about, uh, uh, about the government. Uh, but we thought that uh, because we also had some people who had been in government in other uh, positions like Fakhri Amin, uh, who was in uh, Undersecretary for Education, others, uh, Buzari, Parvin Buzari, and others uh, in our board, in the uh, Council of, of the Women's Organization. Uh, but uh, I think the year of 1975, which was the International Year of Women, where the, uh, the princess led the, the delegation at Mexico and prior to that really helped a lot uh, with uh, Iran getting connected uh, to the international community. 
Uh, and of course, we all helped her do that, but, uh, but she was uh, very much uh, involved with it. I think, and we had something like 12 seminars during that year in each of the provinces. And uh, a lot of visibility we did. We had a film festival, for instance, uh, well, I think the first film festival for women in the Middle East and so forth. So there was a lot of hoopla around women and what they were doing and a lot of visibility. So I think whether it was Princess who suggested it or uh, that someone else or um, I think it must have been her because nobody else would have thought of it. <laughs> but but it, it actually got done because it wasn't an easy thing. And uh, it was difficult for the prime minister, for instance, you know, um, because the, he was a very savvy politician and he was very aware of the backlash uh, to too much visibility by women and too much, uh, you know, power for women. Uh, so I think it was very, that's why, for instance, when I was introduced to the Shah as the Minister for Women's Affairs, uh, I did it in the airport uh, when the Shah was actually uh, going to um, uh, uh, Assad, I think, uh, was either coming or going and he and the uh, king, the queen were there and I was introduced uh, in, the, in the airport and there was no press just one solitary photographer who take a photo and <laughs> didn't know what, but he thought there must be something going on here. <laughs> you know, uh, I, he didn't want to, you know, advertise it or make it too too uh, too big a deal. But you know, it was it was uh, uh, a really a magnificent uh, opportunity for us, and uh, uh, it also helped because there was no other uh, such a position. Uh, so nobody knew what was supposed to be done. You know, what, what is this person who's Minister of Women is supposed to do? Uh, so we sort of could create it as we went, you know, and uh, sort of as a, as a um, uh, possibility, uh, we actually, and because we were also involved with the International Women's Year and the National Plan of Action, uh, we did exactly what we wanted with the national uh, international plan of action for women. Mm -hmm. We put in all those items uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, in the UN uh, proposal. And uh, so it made perfect sense that women are half of the population. Everything that is happening in, in the uh, government is somehow connected to women. So there should be a group of about eight to 10 ministers agriculture, welfare, um, labor, uh, everything, the plan and budget organization, all of these uh, would uh, basically have to be represented in a committee uh, that would then look at the impact of the plans on the uh, participation of women in development. So our national plan of action at the end of that year basically had this in it, you know, had this um, uh, proposal. And, you know, so everybody said, well, maybe, maybe this, is, <laughs> this is how it should be. Uh, but, uh, but it was really a great plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, we um, uh, unfortunately, it got uh, uh, approved very late. There wasn't the time to make it really have impact. 
but uh, it was a unique uh, achievement. Uh, even now, there are very few places that have anything like it. You know, but uh, it, was, it was a very unique thing. Once a month, all of the ministers would have to meet. The prime minister was the head of it. Uh, and uh, the prime minister, of course, attended the meeting once a year. But in, in the, in the meet, meantime, I met with the deputy ministers of these uh, ministries and we went through the plans and how they impacted women, for instance, new agricultural projects, new labor projects and so forth. So it, it was a very solid plan. The <clears throat> Saudi uh, prime minister that she referred to, for those who might not be interested, uh, uh, not, uh, aware of the history of Iran, is Amir Abbas Oveda, uh, yes. who served for uh, 13 years and was uh, uh, executed brutally after the revolution yes. by uh, the Islamic Republic. Uh, there's a lot talk, uh, and uh, the, uh, the description you gave about uh, <clears throat> Oveda's uh, uh, reticent to make much about your appointment. There's been much written about how uh, you had difficulties in trying to pass laws that would make the legal domain more equal. Uh, could you t t talk a little bit about what you think the biggest accomplishments were and the biggest failures were and why they failed? Uh, yes, um, the, the biggest accomplishments were in areas that had very little to do with, uh, with status of women in the family. That was the hardest thing. The ones that were very helpful and really uh, easy to pass were those that had to do with our um, original uh, and basic uh, goal, which was to make women first and foremost economically viable and independent. So it wasn't too difficult to get uh, uh, long maternity leave uh, for women, up to seven months if they needed it. Uh, it wasn't very difficult to, uh, to get uh, half-time uh, work for full-time benefits for professional women uh, who had children under the age of three. It wasn't very difficult to get, uh, of course, I say it wasn't very difficult because I remember that uh, when, uh, when we brought this half-time work, uh, the Minister of Agriculture was a very nice guy, but very old-fashioned. He kept saying, what? This cost the uh, organization, you know, half time, but we have to fill the other half of time and it costs money and the, uh, the benefits and so forth. But, but since the others had already supported it, he was, he was okay. And at the end he said that, well, I'm telling you something, we'll pass this. But I'm telling you something, if you let these ladies <laughs> push you around before long, Mrs. Afhami will ask you to just write a check and send it home to the, to the workers. <laughs> don't expect anything. <laughs> but he did approve of it and, and, and uh, he also went along and it was, it was, um, uh, it became, uh, it passed. And uh, so these were childcare centers in the premises of the workplace so that a woman doesn't have to take her child one end of the tin town and then come back and pick her up and so forth. So all of this was really amazing for that. Mm -hmm. But the family laws, it was really very difficult. And uh, so we were finally, of course, the original people who supported it were um, uh, Senator Manichaerion, who had a more radical version. 
and uh, that didn't uh, uh, go through. Uh, it, it was really to completely uh, uh, get rid of any discrepancy between men and women in family law. Uh, but Merangiz Dolat Shahi had something a little bit more, um, uh, you know, uh, passable in terms of acceptable to, to the Ministry of Justice, who was usually, who was always really basically very hard on that. And anything that had anything to do with religion would be, uh, and everything did. So it would become very difficult. Uh, so um, uh, we, we had the, um, uh, uh, the version uh, that uh, in 67 version of the family laws, which was pretty good. During my period, we really worked very hard with Merangiz Dolachari and some of the others in, in parliament uh, to pass a more advanced version. And that one still had um, polygamy in it but very limited uh, if there was some incurable disease in the first wife or uh, whatever and uh, there was, it was possible to have a second wife but that with the permission of the first wife and it would be grounds for divorce without without uh, challenge uh, so that even now uh, the law that we passed in 75 still is more advanced than almost all of the Muslim majority countries, except Tunisia. I think Tunisia is still ahead of us. So uh, the, the family, the family, and I don't, you know, I don't, I can fully understand because the family where, is where patriarchy lives. The family is where uh, that kind of a top-down decision-making, top-down uh, authority, uh, the distinction between men and women, not only is in terms of uh, uh, the solid, uh, you know, practical actions, but even culturally, you know. And then we women have always also helped in that area. We are the ones who train boys and girls, you know, how to distinguish each other what the little girl has to do to be demure and nice and speak softly and cross her legs and whatever, how the little boy can be out there and do stuff and make decisions. The little girl wears pink, the guy is, you know, masculine. We helped also. So patriarchy is at the heart of the family and, and that is also at the heart of all the laws that relate to the uh, you know, like for instance, your wonderful speaker, uh, Ms. Rafsanjani, talking about the veil, talked, even though she was very open-minded and, and I liked her, her presentation, her idea that, well, women have a different type of a body and the men have a different type of a body. You know, that complementarity that, and the, that men and women are different and the women actually are the compliments of the men. This is something that, uh, that still lives everywhere, you know, everywhere, even in this country. You know. Yes, unfortunately. Uh, I know that uh, we want to open uh, for audience questions, but I want one last uh, question from you. Uh, you worked as a feminist in Iran, uh, as a political leader, uh, as a academician, uh, and then you have worked as a feminist in diaspora. Uh, 
what has been the biggest difference? Do you sense that there is a difference in the way you work about Iranian cases, for example, or about feminism in general, that makes the experience of diaspora for you very different, discernibly different than what you experienced in Iran uh, for the last 10 years of your life in Iran? Uh, well, uh, uh, actually, uh, what I was able to accomplish in Iran with my uh, whole huge number of people who helped and supported and actually did that, it was a very unique experience, you know. It was, it was a very lucky kind of a break. Uh, it was, we really, you know, uh, did experiments at that time, at that, but we have to remember this was 50 years ago. And uh, we were able to do things that, that you know, uh, were amazing. And I have to say that, that what I learned in Iran, both at the uh, local level, the village level, the town level, and uh, at the international level to the uh, UN, our presence at the UN, and then at the government level, these have been really the basic um, learning that has helped me to work with uh, these organizations. First, Sisters Global, but of course, most uh, uh, helpfully and successfully with the Women's Learning Partnership. And there, of course, um, um, the only reason that I was able to work with our partners to create this organization was that I had the privilege of the Iran experience, you see, because our, um, uh, our partners are from the global south and uh, there are uh, 20 partners who decide what we do, who are, who are independent organizations and they are the ones who get together annually for a week and decide what we do. And so, uh, and they have some of the cultural and economic uh, problems that we had in Iran. And uh, so having that experience helps with that. And also having had the American experience and being stationed as an exile in America helps me understand some of the uh, ramifications of uh, a more developed uh, country and so forth. So uh, in fact, I must tell you that what I'm doing at WLP is bringing out for study and uh, either uh, use or not, depending whether it's applicable, is the experience of Iran, you know. It, 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 uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, collective decision-making, for instance. Uh, coming from diverse areas uh, and then having a shared vision, but then trying to implement it in a culturally uh, adapted context. All of that comes from Iran. Of course, Iran being um, the, the vision nationally, but then locally, was a huge difference between Bandar Abbas, let's say, and Tabriz, you know. So more or less the same type of uh, it's that type of thing, a shared vision created together and uh, implementation locally. So it was again uh, the, uh, the accident of uh, destiny that, <laughs> that uh, has allowed that to happen this way. Well, you know, accidents of destiny happen to everybody. Uh, capable people, uh, dedicated people, 
uh, are the ones who take those accidents and make movements out of them. And I think uh, you are one of these people that at every accident, you have been uh, absolutely brilliant in using it to the benefit of uh, Iran, Iranian women, uh, feminism, uh, and uh, all your friends. So I am very grateful that you accepted uh, our invitation. And we now uh, uh, entertain uh, Mr. Roma will be asking questions on behalf of the, uh, the audience. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have a few questions. So I'm going to try to group some of them together so we can get to more of them. There's a, a comment and a series of questions that are all related. So the comment is, despite the attempts to limit the role of women in society, women appear to have made substantive inroads in Iran society today. How do you explain this given there is no formal women's movement? And then a few similar questions. Um, according to Ms. Afkami, what is the status of the Iranian women's movement today? Could you please speak a bit about the women's movement in Iran? What are the most dominant challenges that it faces today? Do you think women's situation in Iran has improved in any way? So I'm just grouping those all together so we can get to that. Okay, uh, so uh, of course we, we all know that uh, at the uh, very beginning of the revolution, all of the work that I've been talking about in terms of the laws and the legal status were completely nullified. Uh, and so uh, uh, women were the first ones uh, to join the revolutionary uh, effort, but they were also the very first ones. The Ayatollah came back in uh, toward the third week of uh, February and in March 8, uh, the first demonstrations uh, was uh, by women. So women were very feisty, very conscious, very um, uh, driven for, for change uh, then. And then afterwards, of course, uh, things happened that we all know, and uh, there were very um, uh, serious limitations uh, on their rights. Uh, of course, I have to say, we don't want to glorify the past either, because not only in uh, Iran, but even still today in lots uh, all over the world, we still have the issue of patriarchy and, and uh, the differences that exist and the struggle that we have ahead of us. So we had it before, we have it during the revolution much more, uh, uh, you know, seriously. And nevertheless, I think the Iranian women have done a marvelous job. They have pushed back at every level possible. We have the privilege and the good luck to work with many of the uh, activists in Iran. Uh, we try not to make too much of it because it causes, inevitably, it causes difficulties for them. But we have done some of it that I can mention uh, is the magnificent uh, movement uh, of the one million signatures for reform of family laws. It was a brilliant uh, movement. It was the forerunner for the green movement. And uh, it was also very much uh, affecting uh, the Middle East in the uh, Arab Spring, and it still does because the things that we learned from that movement, the use of uh, social media, the door to dare, uh, actually consciousness raising, uh, the uh, bringing in men, uh, which is not easy, you know, to bring one third signatories from among the men. These are all things that are magnificent, and so we published uh, uh, the book on one, one million signatures 
in uh, Arabic and uh, Russian and all of Central Asia and the Middle East, they're using it as a, as a way to organize and to push for rights. So there, everything that could happen in terms of pushback, I think the Iranian women have done it and they've really made, changed the nature of the society. And they are the, the hope. They're the ones who know how to make civic society organizations. Uh, and uh, I can't be more proud. Thank you. Um, these questions go back a little bit further. A viewer asks, why was it difficult to update the family laws? Was it because of the Islamic law interpretations? And were any laws made regarding abuse and violence against women at that time? Or any considerations made regarding LGBT women in Iran at that time? Uh, well, uh, the problem with family laws, uh, you know, uh, with uh, laws on the status of women uh, is, is that it goes, as I mentioned before, it goes to the core of what we're used to. You know, uh, it's, it goes to the core of what is the um, accepted and, and the, the way we live our lives, the way we make our food, the way we sit at the table, the way we go out, the way we dress, the way we work, everything is connected to that. So uh, it's very hard to do that because you're talking about changing the foundations, the architecture of human relationships. In some societies, it is easier because things have changed enough to make it inevitable, uh, such as the uh, countries that have gone into the uh, great development process and, and industrializing. Uh, in some countries, it's harder. But all religions have these limitations. It's not just Islam. Uh, we have it, uh, Christianity, Judaism, all of these are, are very much the same. And patriarchy is just the most essential thing that every, every family across the world uh, has been really uh, formed according to that particular uh, system. So changing it is very difficult and backlash is inevitable. I think one of the big reasons for backlash in Iran was the place of women, even though I was mentioning poor Prime Minister Hovida was trying very hard to keep this a little bit slower and a little bit controlled, but uh, it got out of hand. And, and that really was one of the main reasons for reaction. You know. Thank you. A, a viewer is curious what line of argument you use to attract women of a lower class upbringing to follow your subject issues, despite the fact that you were from a very high class family and had more opportunities and luxuries. You know, the thing about women uh, is not so much the economic status, although it affects our lives a lot, but uh, but it is it is uh, if if people understand that, that uh, you're on the same wavelength, you know, uh, and you're thinking the same uh, issues, you know, it doesn't matter whether uh, you are from a higher level uh, family or, or not in terms of feminism. Some of the working women that I met in Iran, which was constantly what, what we were doing, we were constantly talking to the uh, people in the villages, in the factories and so forth. This economic independence piece that I was talking about, I learned from the women in the fabric factory, uh, textile factory all over Iran, you know, how, it was one of the factories where women worked. So it's, it's, it's how you work and, and how you learn 
uh, and how you share uh, ideas that matters. And besides, you know, I mean, for some of my life, I was very privileged, but for a big piece of my life, I was, uh, you know, working for $1.25 an hour, putting myself to school and learning a lot about the union and about how to uh, get your rights as a as a member of a labor labor union, and uh, all of that helped a lot. But basically, is communication. When people seriously think that you and your um, uh, your uh, the person you're talking to are are on the same wavelength, you're talking woman to woman about liberty, about rights, and if that comes across, I think that uh, you can work well together. Thank you. A viewer has a comment and a question. They say, thank you very much for the inspiring work. We really feel proud to have had people like you and feel sad to have lost the influence of people like you. A point that I did not see emphasized is the issue of literacy. Can you elaborate on specific measures on women's literacy during your work at the ministry? Uh, well, this is a very important uh, point. Literacy was the first, actually the first requirement you know, for uh, for doing all of the other things, uh, whether it was advocating for change uh, in the family laws or whether it was just basically getting the minimum skills in order to, uh, to earn a living. So literacy was our focus area. But the only thing that we were very uh, conscious of was the fact that women want literacy so that it relates to their lives. So we chose the way of uh, learning uh, literacy, uh, not as something intellectual, but, but uh, life-related. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a learning how to deal with issues of life. People didn't learn literacy to re read necessarily literary books or newspapers. They wanted to know how it helps their lives. And they have enough problems, actually, the, the, the people who have low literacy, they have enough people, uh, in, enough problems in their lives anyway to add some other thing to it without it having benefits immediately. It was not useful. So that's how we, we taught literacy. And also we were sure to bring in uh, ideas that had to do with their faith and with their values. For instance, it always helped to bring in uh, the uh, heroines of Islam, for instance, uh, and uh, the, the kind of uh, like Khadija, the prophet's wife, you know, as an example, she, he was, she was not only uh, the employer of the prophet, but she was the first Muslim, you know. So this uh, adds uh, the, uh, the values uh, to it, as well as uh, making the learning connected to everyday life, whether it was agriculture or whatever else, to connect it to that area of life so that it was useful and lifelong, you know. I think the same viewer has a follow-up question. I think their interest was uh, literacy at the national level. So when you were in national government, how did you address the issue of literacy? Well, uh, there was the, uh, the, the national uh, uh, literacy campaign uh, and uh, my husband was actually the head of it. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a very, that we worked not only at the national level, but Iran was the one that uh, created the international campaign of, uh, to battle uh, illiteracy. And so we were also connected to uh, uh, UNESCO and UNICEF. 
And uh, so uh, we had a lot of assistance also internationally in formation of the learning and uh, what, what they called life, lifelong learning and, and uh, how to make that. Actually, that's something that I'm trying to uh, incorporate into our plans for WLP. Lifelong learning, not just for literacy, but for all aspects of, of life as we go on, you know. Uh, but uh, we were doing pretty well, unfortunately. Um, I mean, there was a, a steady rise in literacy, uh, but uh, it took a while and, and uh, the, uh, the process was followed after uh, the revolution. And I think it was one of the more successful uh, projects that was followed even after the revolution. Thank you. I think we have time for two more questions. Um, this viewer asks, can you comment on human rights violations against Iranian women and the response of, to such violations on the part of the UN human rights NGOs and other institutions? Well, uh, there, there are horrendous, uh, actually, uh, problems with, with the situation of uh, Iranian women. Uh, the, it, it is, uh, there is just uh, so much that uh, the, the international organizations can do. And especially now with the weakening of the United Nations as a whole, uh, and I think the United States has had a, a, a part in that, and I hope everybody uh, and many of those who are listening to us now are probably diaspora and they're Iranian Americans, and I hope that they will recall, remember this as, as we move forward, that weakening the United Nations is uh, is very bad for every country across the world and and so human rights violations you know when we ourselves here are not paying attention to them are not going to be very useful but there are in terms of uh, the situation in in iran i think the, the almost the worst possible uh, legal status for women exists in iran right now I mean, there's not, uh, I mean, it's true that our, our women are brave and they are amazing and they're educated and they are half of the uh, university graduates and more. And they have every kind of success in whatever is either artistic or entrepreneurial that doesn't have to do with the government. But nevertheless, the legal status of women in Iran is the lowest, among the lowest in the world. And, and of course, uh, you know, you try, uh, you build movements, you complain to the UN, they, they complain to the government, but if the government doesn't care, you know, uh, and pats itself on the back and says, this is Islam and we're, we're Islamic, then there's not much impact. Because uh, usually human rights uh, reactions work when the government doesn't, is ashamed of what it's doing doesn't want to be known as, uh, as stepping on human rights. But our government in Iran, uh, or the government in Iran, unfortunately, takes pride in what they're doing. Uh, they, they're not ashamed of it. And so it's, it's not as possible as much, you know, to, do, to make change without a change in the government. Thank you. This is hopefully a more hopeful question. Um, a couple of viewers are asking, what do you suggest women do who are concerned about the situation of women and want to make changes in women's lives, especially at the public level? How can they help, particularly if they're in the U.S.? Are there organizations in the U.S. they can join to help? Well, I would just, uh, uh, for one thing, with the diaspora, I would, I would join the 
uh, organizations uh, of the Iranian uh, diaspora who are trying to connect between civic life in, in the US and, and the, uh, the Iranian participation. We have such brilliant and, and successful and uh, really amazing people. And if they get involved into the civic life of, of the United States as leaders, as uh, congresswomen, as uh, local uh, representatives, you know, uh, in general, what we have to accept as women is that we have to get power, but we have to also get power that is different from the power that was in hand before. It's not power over people. It's power to work with each other and, and, and make change. So for that, you have to get to a position where you can impact decision-making. Whatever you know, is the way to get there, whether it's in economics, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the arts, if you have a message and join with others who have the same goals, uh, and add the women to it, it's, 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 the, it's the best way to do it. But with being, one thing we can't do is whine, you know, because whining is not going to help us. We have to take charge and, and do what we have to do and, and make decisions be sympathetic and positive for women. Uh, and beginning at the local level helps too. Thank you so much. I just want to pass along. There are several commenters who are thanking you for a wonderful conversation and your excellent and inspiring work. So I just wanted to convey those. We're a few minutes over, so I think we'll have to end there. But thank you so much. It was a thank you. And, and allow me to thank everybody who's listening. I, I really, really appreciate this opportunity. And I wish I could see you, but you can write to me, please. I would love to hear from you. And uh, learning partnership, search, uh, search it on the web. And uh, there are, you know, ways of connecting to us. And I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for everyone who asked, the conversation is being recorded. So a video will be available on our YouTube channel in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much and have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye.